Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. Hello, I'm Charlotte Thomas, Communications Manager at the Leadership Academy. This episode features Keris Furlong. Keris is Chief Executive of Chwaretig, Wales' leading economic development agency for women and charity that campaigns for gender equality. Prior to joining Chwaretig, Keris was Director for Wales at Learning and Work Institute. Keris is also a Governor of Fitz Allen High School and a member of the Executive Board of BBC Wales. In addition with her business partners, Keris has set up a number of successful businesses and runs a small group of pubs and restaurants in Cardiff. This podcast is from Series 4 of the Leadership Unlocked webinars. Bordar, everybody. Nice to be with you this morning. Um, so many thanks for having me today. It's a real privilege to be with you. I'm really looking forward to our discussions. Uh, I'm really, really passionate about education um, for reasons which I'll talk about in a minute, as well as leadership. And I'm not a leadership expert. I'm not an expert in education. Um, I wanted to say... As a parent, from the outset, thank you to you all for everything that you've done over the last 18 months. Um, incredible, incredible work. I'm a really uh, passionate school governor. I see firsthand how hard all teaching staff and leaders across schools, colleges, um, work-based learning, FE, and right across education have worked during this time. So really appreciate it. Deep, deep felt uh, thanks to you all. I wanted to say a little very first about Horateg uh, for anybody who's not familiar with us. Um, we are a charity that's been around for 30 years, celebrating and championing the role of women in all aspects of society. And I'll, I'll touch on it, I'm sure, later. We do have expertise in leadership and management. We deliver uh, a range of programmes uh, for women and organisations around developing leaders in the workplace so I rely on my colleagues all the time for further expertise and it's just phenomenal to see emerging leaders coming through our programs as we have done over the decades that we've been working in Wales but I'm, I'm not going to lecture you on on Chorateg uh, we're here to talk about leadership um, and as you know there are so many different descriptions of leadership and having listened to some of your previous webinars no doubt you've all taken different prompts and suggestions from each of those. But a common description seems to me to be around the process of influencing people to achieve a common goal. So leadership's so widely discussed in academic studies and professional bodies, but there's still no single definition or concept that satisfies all, which is great because it gives me license to talk about the aspects which I, I think are important. And What's clear to me is that there are, are sort of three integral elements to good leadership and, and these centre around the self. So our skillful or otherwise expression of, of qualities and attributes, other people, so how we influence, motivate, inspire people, um, our peers, our staff, line managers, as well as senior stakeholders. And then the last bit being around the job that there is to be done, so how we define review, revise when needed, whatever the task is that we've got to achieve. 
So this is, is really what I'm going to focus on today, bringing some of the, the key things I've learned about leadership against these three areas, yourself, your people and, and your challenge. And starting really with the obvious question of who are the leaders, I'm hoping that many of them are in this virtual room with, with me today. Um, and I've been looking at some studies of, of leadership and many of the early studies really focused on the traits or behaviours of individuals in senior positions. And as a result, we often have this sense and we still see leadership as an individual competence or something that goes along with, with a role. But it isn't just about the qualities of a few um, and it isn't always associated with this sort of formally defined hierarchical role. So while leadership is often exercised by those in charge, being in charge is, is not necessarily a requirement. And I was struck by something that was uh, a term that was used in an event I went to many years ago when somebody referred to the hippo in the room. And I thought, well, that's quite a rude way to talk about people. And they described it as the highest paid person in an organisation. The hippo is not necessarily the person who demonstrates the most leadership. And I thought that was a really... Um, thought-provoking and interesting way of thinking about it. And so I will talk a bit about people as leaders and, and, and how leadership comes through across the whole organisation. And we know, and you know, you guys will have felt this more than anyone as organisations over the last 18 months, that we are becoming more agile um, in the way that we work and the way that we deliver our work. And there's an increasing recognition, I think, that all employees need to demonstrate leadership qualities. Although, you know, the aims and focus of what that leadership um, may be and look like will change from a person's level and differ from organisation to organisation. So what is an effective leadership style? I'm not certainly not going to preach to you today a perfect, homogenous, one-size-fits-all style of leadership. That's why, for me, leadership starts with a, a clear understanding of yourself, because we know that Successful leaders come in all shapes and sizes. They may act really differently or very similar in different situations and have quite different personalities. And I think the trap that many fall into is always to use a favourite approach, which could be wrong, actually, for a particular situation. So CEOs who excel at turning around alien companies may perform much less well when things are stable and, and that stability is required. So perhaps leadership is, is more of a process than an event as someone described devolution uh, many years ago. So over the next half an hour or so, I want to share with you a bit about myself, what I've learned about leadership, and then discuss some of the leadership challenges we all face. And sometimes we recognise things in ourselves better when they're articulated by others. We may identify with some of them or strongly reject them, and absolutely both responses are fine. So that leads me really on to my first sort of lesson or tip, if you like, which is to know yourself. And so I always start most presentations with a, some kind of personal picture, because I think it's really important to have some understanding of the person who, who is uh, talking at you or lecturing you. And um, so this is, this is my crew, my brood, my husband, Tom, who's a chef, um, and my daughter's Tess, who's in year seven at high school and Wren, who's um, still in primary school. And, you know, leadership for me starts with knowing your strengths, your development areas, but it's also about being open and honest with myself and others about who I am and how that shapes what kind of leader I am. So I grew up outside of Cardiff. 
I had a very enjoyable experience of school. I was very much one of those people who benefited from everything that education had to offer. And I went on that linear journey throughout school, university, postgraduate education, um, and, and absolutely loved it all. And after, after that, I was fortunate to have graduated in the early 2000s and at a time where you could sort of fall into a job. And I, I fell into a policy role in education. I absolutely loved everything about it. I worked in lifelong learning for a long time. And I could see that there were real opportunities to make a difference um, in that role. I also have a background in local government. I was an elected councillor for six years in Cardiff, uh, whilst working both in lifelong learning and then later in university education. I've always been really motive, motivated by social justice and fairness, that's from the family upbringing that I have, from, from parents who are, one of whom is teacher, um, my in-laws are all teachers and educators, and that's a really kind of strong value that comes from our family. But we've all got other things going on in our life. And as I said, my husband's a, a chef and we run a couple of pubs and restaurants in Cardiff. So that's been a different kind of exposure to leadership and uh, running your own business and, uh, and everything that's come with that, especially over the last year. And I've also um, had the great pleasure, as I mentioned earlier, to be a school governor for probably nearly 15 years now, across a range of schools, but particularly over the last 10 years at Fitzalan High School in Cardiff, which has probably been one of the most valuable things I've done in my career. So I recognise, you know, I come from a real position of privilege. Um, in the background I've had and the experience I've had, and that I'm sure shapes in part who I am as a leader. But I also wanted to share a bit with you about my traits and characteristics. And you might think this is a bit over the top, I'm giving a bit much, but we're all imperfect human beings. And one thing that I've um, learned really strongly is that to be a good leader, to be good leaders, we need to have a culture around us that doesn't fear criticism, really welcomes critique. And for me personally, this is always, this always reminds me to think hard about my own strengths and and weaknesses. So before I came to Khoratek, I went for two or three other big jobs, which clearly I didn't get. And as part of those processes, as I'm sure often you guys have been through assessment centres and personality profiles, these are some of the, the feedback that I've had over the years. Uh, and one in particular, which some of this is drawn from, uh, I had to show it to my husband again because it was so horribly accurate. You know, confident and gregarious, assertive, enjoys being in the limelight. These are really difficult things to hear about yourself, but I reflect on these and think about them all the time. You know, what does it mean for the people around me? How should I complement my strengths and weaknesses with ones from other team members? When, frankly, do I just need to check myself or apologize for how I come across? And I, I think we have to confront um, ourselves and knowing ourselves all the time because it's a really important and fundamental part of our leadership journey. So that's the most important thing, I guess, I wanted to say about leadership. It starts with deep understanding of you, knowing your strengths and development areas, being open to reflection and feedback. And, and that really enables you to nurture your strengths, make them into your superpowers and work on your development areas. You notice I, I, I tend not to talk about weaknesses, talk about development areas. It's just something I've picked up along the way. Um, and I think, think, think about who you need to surround yourself with to complement your strengths. So to lead, you need to know yourself, be humble, self-aware, presenting ourselves as 
self-assured confidently just all the time is not only exhausting it's just not realistic we all have doubts we all seek or should seek the input of others at times we all have wobbles and these make us human and relatable and authentic and um, in becoming comfortable about knowing yourself you can grow the courage and confidence to be bold which is what we all need to be as leaders when we have to take difficult decisions when we have to balance our own struggles with those staff students and people around us so knowing ourselves can really help us seek out the networks and support that we need to focus on our development areas. So if I just give you some examples from my own experience in organisation on networks. When I started as CEO of Tech, I felt actually quite lonely, quite exposed in many ways. Um, I really wanted to make the very best impression to my new board, um, to stakeholders, my staff and show um, and, and, you know, we have that natural instinct not to show any weaknesses, but I needed support as well and, and a peer network to bounce ideas off. Unfortunately, at the time, I was contacted by a group of women who were senior leaders in different fields um, across Wales who invited me to join their group, which just meets a couple of times a year for a glass of wine or a coffee and, and dinner, and just to chat through how things are going. And that's been an incredible source of support outside of my sector um you know outside of my staff group but also on support within my senior team we've got three real shoot from the hip confident assured people one deep reflector and a real worrier and with confidence i think i've learned to trust my instinct and get about things when making decisions but that doesn't mean i always shoot from the hip if something doesn't seem quite right um, or niggles at me i seek out those reflectors who often thinking about things in a very different way to me. And I think that supports better decision-making and also gives me the support I need to feel confident. So surrounding ourselves by people who are just like us is a, is a mistake. And I think it's something that starting with knowing ourselves um, can really help prevent. So the second thing I wanted to talk about was living your values and you know, preach into the converted, but there's fewer more value-laden professions than teaching. Um, and that's clearly a key motivator for people coming into the profession. And I'm sure for perseverance in even the most difficult circumstances. When we become leaders, do we always hold on to those values and motivators that, that drove us into the professions we're in? These two pictures really remind me of times when I've had to be brave and bold and live my values. The first on the left was speaking at a, a Welsh Government Leadership and Public Services Conference back probably in 2015-16. And I've been part of a group working with the Minister for Public Services, Lake Andrews at the time, on leadership in public services. And we had a conference, which perhaps somebody attended in Swansea. Um, and when I saw the programme for that two-day conference first, there were no women speaking on the first day. And I just thought, you know, this is outrageous. We've been talking for two years about leadership in public services. And no one thought that it was wrong in any way that we were missing the voices of women from uh, that first day's conference. So I raised that point and subsequently was asked to speak on the issue. And I thought, well, you know, this is pre-Hareteg. I don't know anything really about this other than my own experience. But I gave a, a talk about um, challenges to leadership and how we need to diversify. And I'll hopefully have time to come to some of that. Um, and I... I I doubted myself, but I had this sort of poster up behind me for most of that time, which is really my motivator. I can't believe we're still having these arguments. Um, and that's something that really drives me forward as a leader. And the second was at a rally 
with my daughter who's inspecting her belly button fluff at the time. Um, uh, we were protesting sexual harassment and abuse in our institutions when the whole Me Too movement was um, really at its prime. And I'm actually not a very confident speaker at events like that. I like to prepare. I really feel failure and I need validation from people. But because I knew that about myself, I can own it and take some strength. So for me, living my values is very much about speaking truth to power, asking difficult questions. Um, I'm not someone who's prepared to go along with the status quo. Sometimes that means really getting outside your comfort zone. But I think that's a trait of leadership. When everyone's looking at you, um, take strength from your values and, and your mission and know what motivates you. Um, uh, and, and, you know, for, for all of you, I'm sure, like me, will not lack intrinsic motivation. We're really lucky in that sense. And, and personally, I'm really convinced by Daniel Pink's motivation theory, which I talk about in a minute, which has been really instrumental in the way that um, we work at Cryoteg and, and the culture that we've shaped. So I'll, I'll share some of that. So I want to say a little now about uh, leadership and your people. Empowering staff and building the best team you can really is the most important thing and also the hardest and probably takes more time. And I'm sure we've all been there. So if I just didn't have to deal with all this all the time, I could get on with the job. Um, so really important, really difficult. Performance management, as you know, can and does lead to improvements, but we tend to be a bit afraid of it. Sometimes tough decisions have to be made. But more importantly, I think in terms of empowering your team, it's about identifying the strengths and talents of the people around you and finding ways to really engage them, creating a really inclusive culture and putting into practice that across the organisation and not just expecting it to flow down. Thinking about how you can execute the plans that you have through empowering your staff and not trying to do it all alone or relying on the few sort of trusted senior colleagues, which we, we can all have a tendency to do. So trusting your staff and peers, like you trust yourself, but, but also don't be afraid of the tools like performance management, and it can be a really positive tool if used consistently. Certainly my experience in the early days of being a governor of a high school was it was really essential to transformation of the school. Um, and it was really difficult and it was really hard and it took a long time. And it took a group to, to really support the senior leadership team over many years to make that transformation. But really powerful. So I would say, you know, really try hard to stop making rules for the few that you're afraid won't live up to your expectations or the rules that protect you from the incompetence of a small minority, but actually hinder the performance of many. What we should all be doing is trying to create a unified organisation, building cross-team working. You know, we can't really afford to waste time or duplicate effort. Um, we really need to take care of people and focus on, on the results that we can all achieve as a team. At Horatek, our way of working and of empowering people is very influenced by Daniel Pink and his writing. And in his theory on what motivates workers and leaders, he talks about how businesses and leaders should use a new approach to motivation, which is based on self-determination. So according to the theory, people have an innate drive to be autonomous, self-determined, connected to one another. And I think organisations should focus on this drive, whatever type of uh, place of work they are, when managing their employees by creating settings and environments which support our innate need to direct our own lives and to learn and to create new things and contribute to the organisation as a whole. 
So Pink's terms for these are autonomy, mastery and purpose, and I probably haven't got time to go into it in detail, but there's some really good YouTube videos out there that explain these theories far better than I would. Um, they're a bit long for me to use today, um, but I just wanted to reference them. And I think one of the things that I've learned, and I believe through the way that we work at Quarateg, which is very different to anything that I'd worked in previously, and is probably at the far end of the spectrum to what you could achieve within an educational setting, that it's still possible and actually beneficial to unite a strong team behind the shared values and mission of the organisation, but also at the same time empower individuals to live their personal values and recognise that in an inclusive culture, we don't all think the same. Actually, it's really important to have people with different views, backgrounds, value bases, and, and that that strengthens our organisation. So autonomy, mastery and purpose, perhaps if, some, if we have time later, something we can come back to. And building on that, I wanted just to say a little about leaders' role in creating and sustaining the right culture, policies and, and procedures. So I think that any good leader would say that fostering a sense of autonomy and trust is essential to being a good role model. And that is true of work-life balance as much as anything. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Trust is core to the way that we work at Quarantag. We aim to empower our staff to be the best they can. We focus on productivity, not hours, through a process that we call Achieve, which recognises that we all have messy and different lives and that we can't all be at 100% all the time. Um, so Achieve to us is a sort of coaching mentality rather than an annual appraisal. And it's really crucial to allow people to be themselves, to take risks, to be innovative, creative, um, as well as making sure that we're all, all pulling in the same direction. So how do I trust my team? I know that they're all experts at what they do. That's what we recruit them for. And we build a relationship where we can ask for help if we need it and not have to be martyrs all the time. Many of the things that we've introduced in COVID to um, meet some of the challenges, I've, I've referenced some of them on this slide. Now, these will be more difficult for you, but don't let that allow you to dismiss them at hand. What are your expectations of senior staff in their roles? Is it to be available 24-7, on call at all times? It's, it's amazed me that some of the senior staff that I engage with at my children's school do seem to be available at all times. Um, but does that always allow you to get the best out of staff and the best outcomes for, for them and for pupils? I think perhaps it's a question we ought to ask ourselves. And I was chatting to a friend of mine who's a very senior, um, non-uniformed member of the police in England um, the other day. And she was saying that there's a real challenge in policing. And I wonder if it's similar <coughs> in education to a lesser extent um, in the future. How do you take an organisation that's been very much based on command and control, hierarchical structure and leadership into a, a very different culture and context where millennials, Generation Z and everything that comes after expect much more fluidity and flexibility they don't come into careers necessarily and expect to stay there for 30 years or more. And that challenges perhaps our culture of, of hierarchy and how decisions are made and leadership. And there's actually a guy in Gwent Police doing a PhD about this, which I'm definitely going to read when he's finished it. Anyway, so um, however we establish our ways of working, my way of working in my organisation will be different to yours. We all have peaks and troughs and difficult times um, and 
this year has certainly seen that. Working out what you need for yourself, defining your own balance and role modeling good behaviors is absolutely crucial. We need that so that we can keep going. So we protect our physical health, our mental health and well-being. So it's really important that we identify what our limits are. Don't expect them to be the same for everybody. So I really try to role model not being afraid to say no, really recognizing the signs of burnout. So for me, having a dog, getting out there, uh, spending some time in the countryside is like not just something that I enjoy, but something that I need. And that if, if I don't have, and I've had an exceptionally busy couple of weeks where I think, I can't remember the last time I went out for longer than a quick run around the park with, with the dog. I really, really, that's a sort of warning and trigger for me of, of burnout. And, and there are things that will be sacrosanct to all, all of us. So walking my youngest daughter to school most days, um, which means that I can't start meetings till a little bit later, is something that I've never been able to do in any job until this one. So that's really sacrosanct to me. Picking her up on a Friday afternoon, which I'll enjoy doing later, so keeping Fridays a bit lighter of meetings, again, really important. And training myself to say no when I know I need a break, recognising those signs. So you, you might not be able to read it, but this was just a text exchange which I had with somebody um, not that long ago when we had the awful case of Sarah Everard's murder and Wen Jingling in Wales all around the same time. And in my role at work, I was getting asked to comment a lot on it um, and you know, I can actually feel the hairs going up on my arms now. It was a really, really difficult time for us as an organisation because many of us felt incredibly fatigued by having to have these arguments and debates again and again about sexual harassment and abuse and abuse of women. And I got, I'd had a really heavy week of it where every meeting kind of started with conversations about this and I got asked to speak at a vigil um, on the weekend. And I just thought, do you know what? I just don't think I can do it. I need my weekend to recharge, recuperate. And so I'd said to Sarah, the organizer, um, I hope it doesn't sound terrible, but I feel really drained this week and I'm gonna try and have a bit of self-care this weekend. And I hope you don't think that's selfish. And I loved her response. And she just said, rule number one of lockdown, no apologies. You absolutely don't have to apologize. And I thought, Thank God. Like, I was glad I was honest and I was glad that her response was, you know, you do what you need to do for you. So for me, having a break, taking holidays, I never, I've never been one of those people who has annual leave to roll over. I always use mine. I always wish I had more. And my closest team around me know when I need to take a break and they're not afraid to tell me because we trust each other. Um, and I've heard some real horror stories lately and I'm sure you will relate to some of these of, staff across the public sector not being allowed or discouraged from taking leave. And this seems to me entirely counterproductive in so many ways. So investing time and effort into your self-care and that of your team, I'm really, really firm about this. And I'm putting a big focus on, on well-being is really crucial. All teams and individuals do it in different ways. As I suggested, I'm no exercise junkie, but needing that time outdoors, especially after lockdown being, I live quite central Cardiff, being stuck in Cardiff was hard. I needed to walk, I needed to see the river and, and that sort of daily exercise, walking on tap, I think saved my sanity throughout the last year. In work, um, I wasn't really a fan of doing sort of online 
after work things, but someone in my senior team organised an online facial, which I sort of was a bit like, oh God, I better go along. I'm the chief exec after all. It wasn't something I'd normally do, but you know what we had? It was such a giggle. And doing that was was so important. Um, and just participating in, in some leisure activities with staff. We had a step challenge in March, which, you know, in those dark months where you thought lockdown was never going to end. We, again, we had a staff from across the organisation at all sorts of different levels got really competitive about how many steps they could do and 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 that was fun just to relate to people in a different way but also to drag ourselves out in the dark or at lunchtime or whenever we could snatch a, a walk so we all as leaders do long hours um they don't necessarily always correlate with greater returns they're often correlated with poor health consequences so i think we really need to be self-disciplined with our time and and also role model um, good behaviours because what our staff see us doing really really matters to me so that's central and crucial to creating a really supportive and inclusive culture is being really open to different perspectives and views this is a young woman Mamuna who uh, came to some of our events a number of years ago um, really challenging I remember really challenging us on a number of issues about what we were doing as an organisation and I got into that kind of defensive, well, you know, what do you know what we're doing? Like we, we are doing work on this. And I've sort of come to realise that the challenges that come to us that really make us bristle, that make us feel defensive, are usually the most important questions that we need to ask. And I think seeking perspectives from people, getting out of your comfort zone, asking those difficult questions of ourselves, making ourselves uncomfortable sometimes is really important. The world is changing so rapidly around us. How we adapt to those changes and and where we find the answers won't just come from ourselves and the people like us. We've got to listen and learn from others and recognise um, what more we can do. And I'll talk a little later about taking responsibility. Always an unpopular figure to put up on a slide, but um, I want to talk very briefly about communication. And Alistair Campbell, uh, who certainly had more hair here than I think he has now, um, you know, was the, the sort of a uh, communicator of the 1990s, I guess. And I once wrote, read about a third of his book before I think I threw it across the room. So I can't stand it anymore. But really interestingly, he um, talks about communication and I, I learned some important lessons from what he said, which is as leaders, we can think that people understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we can do all of those things about having great policies and ways of working and and doing the right thing and trying to empower our staff. I think sometimes we don't realise how much and how frequently and how important it is to reiterate and restate constantly those messages um, across our organisations and to do it in different styles and ways. So Alistair Campbell said, you know, one of my rules is that just as the politicians are getting sick and tired of saying something and the media are getting bored of hearing it, it's the point we have to keep going with an argument because that's when it's penetrating. And our communications are not about arguments, but they might be about trying to get people on board with one united sort of vision or mission. And it's about constantly coming back to the why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And explaining and finding different ways to do it, being really transparent, making people feel engaged in the challenges and opportunities we face so that everyone feels that their role is an important part of delivering on the mission and that we're all one united team. And then I guess linked to that is leading with passion. And I always say to our staff, you know, we've got to think really big. We're a third sector organization. We're not particularly well resourced. 
we should, our mission should be doing ourselves out of a job. We shouldn't need an organisation to focus on gender equality. Let's not rest until the work's done. I genuinely believe making equality for all is a reality in Wales. It could be possible. Wales being a world leader in gender equality is possible. We could achieve that in our lifetimes. But I have to believe it and I have to show my team I really believe it and that we can do these things for them to be motivated. And I think passion, that passion that you get from good leaders is really contagious. Um, and, and, you know, we can't fake it. That's why the sort of recuperation and um, self-care is so important. Most of us, I'm sure everybody in this room, don't come into our roles for the pay packet, the pension and, and the other perks, what perks, but we do it because we're passionate about what we do. And, and this picture's from um, our event that we do annually called Women's Spire, which is probably the one that gets the most goosebumps um, for me in the annual calendar and, and really kind of ignites that passion for what we do. And I'm sure you'll get that on results days and in all sorts of different scenarios. During this year, we've all had to ask our teams and members uh, staff to go the extra mile. You guys know that. And we knew that we'd have to be prepared to do the same as leaders. And, and that doesn't just mean piling on the extra hours and looking at risk registers or pouring over leave requests or for us thinking about furlough in our businesses and how we supported staff who were off work in hospitality for a long time. It also meant going the extra mile showing that we cared. So before staff and we were still able to travel, our senior leadership team went the length and breadth of Wales dressed as elves, which seems ridiculous and was, but we delivered party boxes to every team member ahead of our Christmas party. We didn't want it just to be another team's call. It was just so good to see some people face to face. Um, and, and some of them weren't dressed, <laughs> as you can see, but everybody had a giggle and, and they really appreciated that. And it gave people a real boost going into Christmas. They felt valued and that we cared about them. So, so don't shy away from doing things that engage with staff in different ways and in difficult ways. And that's exactly what we need to do when things get tough. Um, and kind of linked to that, you know, remember to have fun. So for our Christmas party, um, we all decorated our rooms, which were our offices. We still dressed up smart. I put my wedding bunting up and fairy lights and, and we all had a couple of glasses of wine and it was, it was really good fun. Um, and, you know, that I think allowed us to relate to people in different ways. And the, the picture on the left is two of my sheroes, Jane Garvey and um, Fee Glover. I'm a big fan of the Fortunately podcast. And a couple of years ago, I thought um, they were talking about having a Christmas party and they were looking for venues. I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun if they did it in one of our pubs? So I, I got in touch with them and I thought, well, they'll never respond. And, and they did. And they did a a live, uh, this is obviously pre-COVID, a live edition of their podcast broadcast from the Grange pub in Grangetown. And it was so much, so fun. And it was so good to kind of bring those different parts of my life together. The business side, which sort of sits up with you often to my passion for gender equality in my work and my love of radio. And, and sometimes uh, loads of my staff from Quaritech came to that event and loads of our staff from across the the pubs and restaurants that we run did as well as members of the public and it was really kind of important to say we can have fun with the things that are important to us as well it doesn't all have to be about policies and working with Welsh government all the time and then kind of in that spirit getting creative with your time is really important there was a point um so the picture on the left is my office which I'm in now which used to be my daughter's box bedroom um like many people working from home 
I got really sick of doing it off the dining room table and at some point last summer kicked my daughter out of her bedroom and thought um, I've got to have a better working environment and it was a bit mad for a couple of weeks because I spent every evening and weekend up ladders decorating this room that I sort of adopted as, as my uh, office and it was a real pain but do you know what those evenings listening to the radio not looking at the tv focus focusing on creating a better workspace for me it's made me feel really much better and more motivated about going to work but also it was just distraction from the day-to-day kind of daily grinding some different gain some perspective and some people that's a bit more creative than slapping a bit of grey paint around but whatever it is for you don't think it's not important and and also getting out and doing different things when you can so when we had the chance to go to West Wales the last time we went on a boat mackerel fishing with some friends which was just amazing just to be on the sea and to sort of again gain that perspective we did all get horrendously seasick just after this photo was taken but it was still a lovely day and kind of um almost finally on on these kind of tips i guess is is don't sweat the small stuff i think it's been such an intense couple of years in so many ways you know being um for me being at home constantly homeschooling um despite the amazing support that you and your colleagues have all offered and being a chief exec and also trying to keep three businesses that were on their knees going has been really difficult and sometimes you've got to let go of the small stuff so these two pictures remind me of that the the one of socks is our sock city as we call it in our house just just gave up trying to pair socks I can't pair socks for four people anymore. It's not important. So I've just said to my kids, wearing old socks is cool. That's fine. Uh, or if you want to pair them, you go into Sock City and find a pair yourself. So I've given up on, on pairing socks. And, and the other is my slightly dubious face when on a day when I hadn't had a shower and washed my hair, I was asked to do a last minute BBC live news thing. And my, my sister's a hairdresser. So I rang her up and said, oh my God, what can I do to make my hair look better? She said, well, just get straighteners and sort of curl it a bit. And I was like, I don't do straighteners. I don't know how to do it. So this was my end result. And I just thought, do you know what? No one cares what you look like. Like they're not there to see what you look like on the telly. They're here to listen to what you say. So those have kind of taught me not to sweat the small stuff when there are more important things. So before you go into your, your breakout rooms, I wanted to end with some, some challenges for you and for us all really. And I think this um, image on the left from UNICEF is, is really great and really captures me the moment that we're at. I thought I was generation equality. I went to school in the 1980s and 1990s and thought I could do anything. I was confident and assertive. I genuinely believed that I could be anything that I wanted to be. That was the way I was brought up. It didn't occur to me that anything would hold me back. But now I can see that my personal and professional journey has really been shaped in so many different ways by the societal forces around us, by unconscious and conscious biases, and by decisions that I've had to make or that have been made for me. And across the world, girls and boys see gender inequality in their homes and communities every day, in textbooks, in media, among the adults who care for them, who teach them, and in the role models they aspire to be, whether we think that they are worthy role models or not. And in many ways, gender inequality starts small. You know, perhaps every child is, is born equal, but they grow and we've all got a duty and responsibility to play our part in doing something about it. So some leadership 
challenges for you. Um, this is Sonia Sotomayor. She's an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the USA, uh, appointed by Barack Obama. She's the third woman to hold the position, the first woman of colour, the first Hispanic, and first Latina member of the court. And she's right in what she says here, of course, gender equality is one of the 17 sustainable development goals that form part of the blueprint for peace and prosperity across the world. Um, and it's also uh, at the heart of the wellbeing goals, um, the Future Generations Act. It's all of our business. I feel incredibly passionate that you as educators have a central role uh, to play in achieving equality, but we're such a long way from it in education. I could pick on any range of measures about the gendered nature of the subjects that pupils choose, the resulting gendered nature of the sectors and industries that people, girls, boys, men and women work in, the impact that has on the gender pay gap and therefore women's lifetime earnings, the culture of some educational institutions, as well as the gendered nature of leadership and education, which we'll come to. So when it comes to our own leadership, how and when do we shift from blaming somebody else for all of this to taking responsibility for it? Weirdly, blame is still a remarkably popular uh, but ineffective strategy for change. I worked in post-16 education for many years. I've seen how this sometimes happens. And I know it's not always like this, so I don't want you to take this, um, take this in the spirit as intended. But when it comes to really hard stuff, addressing poverty, inequality, achievement, so on, often we blame each other. So at its worst, schools blame colleges for things. Colleges blame schools, administrators blame teachers. We blame the LEA or Welsh Government for impossible workloads and, and working conditions. High schools blame primary schools, we blame early childhood, we blame the parents. Where does it all stop? And I think that to deal with the challenges of the 21st century, we have to shift from the culture of blame to one of responsibility and to be the outstanding leaders that we all want to be and we need to be. We have to take that feedback that we give children, students and colleagues we have to listen, learn, reflect, make changes. We have to take personal responsibility and model some of the changes that we want to see. So, as I said, I'm really passionate about ending educational inequality and I'm nearly finished and you'll be able to go into breakout rooms in a sec. I come from a family of teachers and in my work daily see the really transformational impact, um, positive and negative, that education can have. But let's focus on who the leaders are. Um, expanding the pool of leaders must be all of our business and representation and role models really, really matter, not just in education, but um, across every sector. So changing the culture and sector to one where we promote organised uh, leadership development as the academy is integral to and progression as the norm is essential. Celebrating great leadership in education, raising awareness of the positive impact of good leaders is also crucial I think. Certainly my experience from working with some incredible head teachers and role models in education, something that often they shy away from, don't want to take credit and reflect on, on the good that they do do. But fundamentally, we know it matters because it affects student outcomes. And I was stating the obvious, but I read an Ofsted report in England a while ago, which um, obviously pointed to the fact that where Ofsted rates leadership and management higher than overall performance, is that school is 10 times more likely to improve its rating at the next inspection than where leadership and management are rated worse than overall performance. So we need that culture of development, feedback, um, access to development opportunities. And crucially, I just don't think we should accept the way things are, as you see on this slide, because 
they've always failed some people in education. As I said at the outset, I was one of those people who benefited absolutely from everything the state had to give. And if you were like me and you go on that linear journey, you get loads of investment. Yes, I paid some fees for my higher education, but they're still massively subsidised by the state. When I saw some of the incredible stories from people when I worked in adult education, people who fell out of the system for whatever reason, didn't necessarily get that investment and support later. We can all be agents of change, change not just the makeup of educational leadership, but change people's experiences. And the last thing I, I really wanted just to flag, because it's so current, I was really pleased to see yesterday the new Education Minister, Jeremy Miles, announced a review into sexual harassment in schools following the reports naming Welsh schools on the Everyone Invited in, uh, website and the Ofsted report in England. So if you employ women, um, it's likely that a high proportion of them would have experienced domestic abuse. You can help. There are things we can all do. Create a space where you can talk, listen and believe women. Have a domestic abuse policy. Empower your staff to feel confident, support each other. And also think about what young girls are experiencing right now. This comes from some work that we do every year. We, do, we publish a State of the Nations report, which looks at a range of measures around gender equality. But the figures speak for themselves that actually sexual harassment in many ways went up during lockdown, despite us all being stuck in our homes. There's a really powerful um, short um, spoken word piece by a, a poet called Sarah McCready who talks about relationships and sexual harassment um, and that I think really really kind of is an eye-opener for us so those were just some kind of leadership challenges that I wanted to unlock. So we'll kick off with the Q&A and uh, Rebecca hopefully um, if you can ask a question that's come through on the WhatsApp chat um, so a question around the social media, if you're willing to ask Keris the question, Rebecca. Yeah. Morning, Keris. Really enjoying the morning. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things that we've noticed perhaps influencing the children and the parents has been um, the impact on social media. And in a negative, sometimes, in, oh, sorry, our fire alarm's being tested. Um, the sort of negativity in in the media about the teaching profession, it's always, it's gone up and down in a roller coaster, isn't it? And I think what saddened me recently, um, I do a lot of coaching with MPQH candidates and it's a number of those candidates who say, oh, I don't fancy it. I don't fancy being a head teacher. I don't want, you know, I don't fancy that at all. And I think it's how we manage that influence of social media, I think is moving forward. It's becoming more and more um, of, a, of a big issue, I think. Yeah, thanks Rebecca, that's a really good, Point and a really good question. I think, you know, I'm a huge advocate and user of social media, sometimes to the point where my kids tell me to get off Twitter um, and tell me off for it. But um, I agree, it can be a, both a force for good and a force for evil. And I think what we're seeing in society generally at the moment is that uh, issues, any issues becoming divisive, that people are either at one end of the argument or the other and very little room for sensible discussion and debate in between. And, you know, um, when, certainly what we think about as Quarateg in terms of how do we address the negativity about women and gender and girls um, and healthy relationships and all those things through social media, it's about trying to control the issue. So we put out positive stories all the time. We, we promote positive role models. We talk about 
So you might think about what a wonderful profession it is and how you can demonstrate um, all the great things about being a head teacher rather than just allowing the narrative to be peddled by, by someone else. It can be um, really damaging and, you know, we see all the time that there's a disproportionately negative impact on, on young women's mental health compared to, to, to young men. But so we try to counteract that with, with positivity and taking control and also things like... Um, sometimes organise support for each other. So if I know that um, I'm going to be saying something controversial or we're publishing a report that we'll probably get piled on by one side and the other, um, sometimes what we do is coordinate other organisations who I know will stand with us and say, no, this is really important. We need to have this debate. Um, and so I'm sure there's a role for the academy, but also the teaching unions, also for, for Welsh Government, for Education Minister for LEAs to talk um, not just sort of say, oh, we're recruiting for a new head teacher to this school, but to actually talk much more positively about how impactful that role is, what an incredibly rewarding career it could be. So sometimes I think we just accept the situation without trying to influence it. And I really think that we should influence it. For me, you know, we always say, especially to young people, we recognise that you can't be what you can't see. And so we're going to put front and centre really good role models in front of you. And, and that goes for you guys as a profession. Yeah, Gareth, thank you so much for that. Gareth Williams, uh, a Skolkovian Goer, um, if you're available, I, I know you put in a comment in the, in the breakout room regarding accountability. How do you make the shift from a historic culture of accountability um, to a new exciting system driven by autonomy and purpose? Really, really difficult, isn't it? It's a great question. I think it's not just a challenge for individual institutions, but when you're in a profession that's so interconnected with each other and your families of schools and your LEA and Welsh government and all of the stakeholders that you have to work with, you're getting pulled from this direction and that direction whilst trying to create a great culture of your own. Um, we did a big review for Welsh government a couple of years ago, gender equality review, looking at how they could shift the way that they did things so that it became less of a kind of hierarchical culture where everybody was accountable for the outputs that needed to be measured and those boxes were ticked off to one where we trusted people to, to say what was required in their area of need or area of work. That's a big shift. I think it's about getting um, your voices into the positions of of responsibility and power as well, making sure that teachers, head teachers, leaders, um, decisions that are made that affect you in terms of what you're expected to do are reflective of the reality that you all work in. Um, but within your own organisations, I think, I guess, it does come down to some of that role modelling. So I, I say to my staff all the time, and appreciate you're working in a different environment where safeguarding is at your core, but I've, we talk about taking risks and innovating. And to go along with that, I say to people, some of those things will fail. We will make mistakes. And that's okay as long as we learn from them. And I'm sure you say that to your pupils all the time. Do we allow it amongst the culture of our leadership teams um, to say, well, I'm going to try something different. It might fail. But let's be open about that and have that culture where I'm on autonomous to be able to do that. And it may result in a different outcome. So one of the behaviours that, um, I always challenge civil servants on um, both within local authorities and within government is 
you know, if we just do the same thing all the time, we will get the same outcomes. If we let people try different things um, and work in different ways, some of those might not work, but some of them could actually be the real light bulb moments that, that lead us to behave in very different ways in the future. So I'm not sure there's a there's a total answer to your question, Gareth, but um, it takes time and trust and being brave as a leader to, to, to role model that and, and lead it from the top and allow people to, to come with you, recognising that it's not a switch that you flick overnight, it's more about a culture. Yeah, Kenneth, if, if I could just uh, prompt another question because we're talking about cultures here and you, and you mentioned in your presentation and in one of your questions for the breakout room that the blame culture the the the, uh, the culture of blame that's obviously in education as well how should we in schools uh, how do we shift from a culture of blame to one of responsibility really really difficult isn't it because we all naturally say well this child as pupils come to me with these things that could have been corrected earlier, that could have been, you know, that it should, this need to have been as bad as it is. And we've all, we've all been in those situations, but rather than thinking um, everybody's on a, as I talked about with my own experience on a linear journey, and we should all, we should all experience the benefits of education in the same way, recognizing that that doesn't always work. And we all have an opportunity to say, well, what can I do now in this moment with this person, with this team, with this set of staff, with this year group? Not, oh, I would have done it differently if it had been different. That's gone. We we can only operate in the, the moment and the chance that we have. And you will all know when you've been heads of year, how fleeting that kind of experience of having a cohort of children or a cohort of adults is. And you get one chance to make that impact on them. You use the chance to make as positive an impact as you can, recognising that at the end of it, not everyone's going to come out with all of the A stars, not everyone's, but if we can shift everybody in a positive way, I'll give you an example from my own area of work. We do a lot of work with organisations across the public, private um, and voluntary sector around supporting them to improve their culture, uh, make them places that are more attractive to women, to retain women, to progress women, and so on and I always say to staff don't forget we're not the gender police it's not our job to go in there and say gosh you've got terrible culture haven't you been awful why haven't you why aren't you as good as these people over here it's about just shifting the dial in a positive direction with the time that we have with them so if we can make some improvements we might not fix it all uh, but that leaves them in a better position than they were in the in the first place and then also um I think really important as leaders is to be really open and public and transparent about taking responsibility and also accepting when things haven't gone as well. So we've we've failed at some things and there have been times when I thought I can't believe that mistake has happened and we've we've dropped the ball here. And I think putting your hand up and saying we got this wrong, we could have done this better. I'm going to take responsibility for that now and this is what we're going to do about it. Um, rather that some people are afraid of doing that because they think it kind of shows them as a weak leader, it exposes failures, but I think it's actually the reverse. It shows that you're brave and courageous in, in recognising that none of us gets things right all of the time, but we will take responsibility and, and learn from our mistakes and do things differently in the future. Right, thank you. Jeremy, I think you've got a uh, point about the appointments to leadership. Yeah, hi, Keris. Thanks. Uh, I, I was in a really good um, 
gender balanced group and uh, we had a discussion around um, some of the statistics you put up around who's in leadership in education, which obviously is, is our field. Um, and, and a really good discussion about what we could do about it and how, how we think this has come about and why it's come about. And um, we were wondering, perhaps, have you got any tips? We, we rely heavily on governors and, and governors quite often have got, you know, a range of people, but county councillors who are in, the, in their older years, let's say, they've got their various uh, thoughts and, and processes that they go through, I'm sure. But what, one thing we talked about was... was um, de-genderizing, if that's a word, uh, application forms. We've taken off dates of birth and things like that from our application forms, but it still becomes apparent. We also talked a little bit about how men tend to blow their own trumpets more than women, perhaps, in an application. So would that work? What would you, what would you say is a, a good way for us to redress that balance? Great question. There's loads there. Jeremy isn't there because it's yeah. for ages about recruitment and selection. Um, Good practice, but and I've I've been there as a school governor. Um, I probably was county councillor, but not an aging white man. Sorry, um, at the time recruiting <laughs> recruiting a head teacher, and so I know exactly what you mean. I think that the first thing to think about and to be really clear with whoever's running the recruitment, including the support that you get from the local authority or otherwise in that process, is about really stating clearly what it is you're looking for what is it because I think we we just default into lists of well this is what a head teacher does or this is what a senior position is required and I don't think we often challenge ourselves to think about well what is it that we are actually looking for what does this school or this place need right now what are the skills and attributes that we're looking for um there's loads I could say about how you gender lens recruitment processes and there's really good practice out there I'm sure that we could um, share some of that with you separately we are big advocates of gender blind recruitment um uh, but I have also spoken to other institutions so the BBC is a good example that switched back from it because they found that their recruiting managers would be were positively discriminating when they could see some characteristics and 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 the, it sort of had the reverse effect that you you describe so I for me it's about how do you get to the outcome that you want to I'm not saying that there's a that gender blind recruitment works for everything but it tends to be good practice and I think it's about setting out well, how does the recruitment process run so for example um we did some work with the police a couple of years ago who found that they were they after the McPherson report and Stephen Lawrence murder they did loads of good work on recruiting a more diverse uh, cohort of people into police but because people stay in the police for so long like lots of, in the teaching profession that diversity wasn't coming through quick enough and what they were finding was they had a sort of classic sticky middle and they couldn't get women and um, particularly beyond that chief officer level and when we talked to them about it they said well you know, our um, National Police Federation kind of recruitment process is a really standard, something that we're stuck with across the, 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 um, the whole UK. And we said, well, do you think you've got women who could progress to that level? I said, absolutely, we know the ones. We, we could tap them on the shoulder and we encourage them to go for it, but they, they're, they're not quite getting there. And we said, well, it's okay to work with them and to take that group of women and, and work with them through the process. To coach them and support them and say you know you're not 
sometimes I think we see recruitment as a set of tests which you either pass or fail. It's about getting the right match between the individual and, and the place of work. And we should do much more to enable the person to su su succeed in that. So I've got some recruitment coming up and we, we're experimenting with this, but we're going to give the candidates all the questions in advance because uh, and we're going to test them in different ways on the spot but we, it's something we've never tried and I'm really interested to see how it um how it might yield a different result because I think we test people's skills of presentation yes that's a really important part of a leader but there's so much more um that we need to pull out so it's it's kind of breaking down, I could talk about this forever, um, breaking down what it is you want and how you, you get to a different outcome. And don't be afraid to coach that recruiting team and say, look, we're not looking for more people like us. We're looking for something different, if that's what you're looking for. We're looking for somebody who will take this in a different direction and address challenges in a way that we haven't thought of. We recruit in our own image. That's our default kind of setting. And if we want to create that diverse, inclusive workplace, we've got to think, not would this person fit in with the culture we've got here, but would this person bring something different that we haven't got? Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I think there is a there's a big change, a cultural change. Education recruitment tends to happen over one or two days, and and a decision has to be made that night, and it's completely different to other. You know, if you if you had been recruited as a pilot in the RAF, it's a completely different system, which which really does get the best. So I think I think we've got something to learn there. Thank you very much. Great. Thank Jeremy. Um, Sarah Coombs, uh, you've got a question? I followed your journey on Twitter for a long time and I've seen the difficulties that you're, you're, uh, you faced in, in running your business throughout the COVID period. I just wondered, how have you found such varying roles? You lead policy change until four o'clock and then you found yourself waiting tables come five o'clock due to the lack of... Um, workforce that's available in Cardiff at the moment. I just wonder what it's taught you as a CEO, shifting between roles within an hour and then going home and being a mum. Being an emotional roller coaster of a year, put it that way. And um, I think one of the things that it's taught me is to be humble. So, you know, I don't have any kind of qualms about waiting tables or going and helping with the washing up. I, I, it's always irritated me that people don't see hospitality as a a valuable profession um, and a rewarding career and I think sometimes that's why I do say it um, I you know what's wrong with me going and doing that and helping and supporting my family business and showing um, that when the chips are down like we all do with our our families and friends we all muck in and, and pull together and that's really important and and you know that's important for my staff to see sometimes because it also makes it okay for them to come to work and be open about the challenges and difficulties that they've got going on in their life. So I had a really interesting kind of discussion with some staff this week who were talking about how we plan capacity better across the organisation. So when new work comes in, we can have a wonderful spreadsheet that says, well, this person's got 25 minutes spare on that day and they could help or they've got half an afternoon here. And I said, yeah, but that doesn't tell us anything about what's going on in people's lives. It doesn't tell us anything about, well, this person might need a bit of that capacity this week because you know what, they've got a partner going through chemo or they've got something going on at home that we that we need to support them with. So I think my family would say she's somebody who can't say no and she's got fingers in all the pies. And, and that's true. I like the variety and I do find it difficult to say no to things. But 
also I've always thrived off that variety. And I think it's come from early in my career when you know, I worked in politics for a long time and then went into local government, but was working full time and having a young family and setting up businesses. And at one point I thought, oh, it'll become clear which of these paths is for me. And what's become clear is that actually I like all of that. I like that variety. That's meant career limiting decisions sometimes. I, I got asked once, you know, well, you by a recruiter, you're really limiting your career progression because you're um, only wedded to this part of the UK or, or to Wales or to South East Wales. And I was, I just said, well, that's my choice because my husband works shifts and we tag team children and I've got young kids and I want to be around. So I, I accept that. I'll accept that limitation, but I get so much breadth and variety and um, lovely experiences as a result. But, you know, by God, it's been frustrating and at times I'm sure like all of you just thought why am I doing this why am I doing this to myself this year but the the, the good times do come um and you know we all have those days where we think this is why I do it this is the satisfaction that we get and it's about enjoying that moment as well and reflecting on reflecting on that that's sometimes why, why I ask the question about legacy I think we can all point at each other and say you've made a huge impact your legacy will be this but we don't do it to ourselves I say it to my husband all the time when he's down about his career. And I say, but look what you've achieved. You know, look how many people you've employed. Look what a difference you've made to the food scene in Cardiff or whatever it is. Um, giving that validation and kind of assurance to other people is really important. Thank you. Dewi? Hi, I'm Hi, Keris. Um, thank you very much for this morning. Um, a question which I, th I think you've touched upon a few things here, but again, it's just to, to, to dig deeper, really. Um, um, you talked about being brave, being resilient, facing challenges and taking risks. And these are, just to name a few, pertinent to our roles as leaders um, in education. What is the biggest risk that you've taken and how do you feel this has impacted you in your career so far? I mean, I've taken lots of it. I never ever thought I'd do this job. I, I, that was this was a risk to go and do because I knew it would pigeonhole me, and people say it all the time. Oh God, here she comes again, trotting out and saying more stuff about gender. Um, but I felt so passionate about the changes that we needed to make that um, I was willing to take that risk. Some of the risks are about not doing things. So when I stepped down from being a councillor, I stepped down before my term of office um, was coming to an end. But I had to do that for for my the sake of my family, for my emotional health and probably for my future career, because I was just I find it hard to give up things. But I was uh, too much going on all the time. And um, my husband and I had been trying for a second child for a long time and it just hadn't been happening, hadn't been happening. I'd got a new job uh, starting in the January and I thought, do you know, what? this is my chance to focus on one thing and to 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 give it up but I was I had a terrible kind of reaction from my colleague not all of them but from lots of my colleagues and constituents who felt that I'd let them down and I'd been elected and you know here I was giving up halfway through but I knew it was the right decision because in the second week starting my new job I found out I was pregnant and I obviously just needed to give something up I just was holding on to it all too tightly and sometimes I think you know the the fear of disappointing people was a, a, a kind of a big thing for me um but I had to kind of do that for myself my family and I've 
I've never looked back. And I, the best piece of advice I had at the time was from a former boss who said, why are you worrying about this so much? You can be political in so many different ways. You, What is it that you really like about politics? And I said, making a difference and what we all go into public uh, life for in, in different ways. And he said, well, you can do that in so many different ways. And I think kind of letting go and, and realising that that was true and I could still have purpose and, and add value and still make a difference, but without having to be everything to everyone all the time, just like lifted the weight and enabled me probably to be a better person and also realized that you know um there's a huge amount of ego that goes along with leadership and we need that don't we because with resilience uh, or to be resilient you have to believe yourself and back yourself a lot of the time and have confidence and be courageous and brave like I said um but sometimes the negative sides of ego can be when you believe the hype around you and everyone tells you what a wonderful leader you are. Um, but we also need to reflect on when our partners, our families, people around us say you're doing too much. You need to stop and you need to kind of step back and, and get some perspective. And I, I think those sort of examples for me, times when um, things were either had gone wrong or were about to go wrong and I had to do something that maybe I didn't really want to do or that felt brave at the time or that came at a personal kind of risk or loss to me, but ultimately was the right decision to make. Yeah, Claudia. I think we've got, conscious of the time, I think we've got time for one more question uh, from our Llewyn. Let's go to them. Hey, Kerry. Thank you very much for this morning. I'm never going to feel guilty about not pairing my socks again, and I'm now going to create my own sock city. So, I've just got a question um, for you about the mood hoovers that we've got in schools. Um, I think they're probably everywhere, aren't they? Have you got any top tips for us um, about these mood hoovers that are sucking out the passion and the fun out of out of schools? Yeah, okay. So I think you mean the, the sort of people who drag you down, really. Yes. Who don't come on board with the journey. And, um, you know, I think that kind of, links to I said right at the beginning um when you're talking about empowering the team that performance management is something not to be afraid of and I think I believe in that really passionately because you can set out your store your vision where you want to go how, what you want the direction of your organization to be and you can be really clear and transparent about what that's going to mean I'm at that process at the moment with our organization we've been hugely reliant on government money for forever and ever that money now post Brexit is not going to be there we've got to take ourselves on a much more commercial journey and I say to staff all the time some of you won't want to come on that journey some of you won't feel comfortable with it some of you will want to go and work somewhere else and I'm telling you that's okay and I'm also telling you that if you can't come on that journey this won't be the place for you in the future and I think sometimes we're afraid of confronting that and those conflicts but I think being authentic is not about being everyone's friend all the time. It's not about sort of saying, oh, yeah, we do all these lovely fun things and we dress ourselves and, you know, we, we have nice sort of staff parties and things. It's about clarity and transparency about what you're doing and being really honest with people. To, as some was just saying in answer to the question from Jeremy about recruitment being a match between what you need as an organisation and, and the person that you're trying to recruit. That's the same all the time. If that match doesn't work, then that person's going to be dragging you down all the time. So you can do all the things that you need to do to support them and coach them. But sometimes you also have to confront and say, 
is that are you really getting what you want out of this role are you you know maybe you would um get more fulfillment out, out of a different culture um, a different set of circumstances and don't get me wrong um in a unionized workforce i appreciate how difficult that is and i've been the school governor who sits there and on disciplinaries and and those sorts of things but it makes such a difference and we've spent a couple of years at Fitzalan certainly tackling some really difficult uh, mood hoovers and not just mood hoovers but you know people who weren't performing uh, to what our expectations were and what the people's needed and I remember clearly I can't believe it now and um, I hope Kath won't mind me saying it but I remember in the very early days when she started some teachers saying these pupils will never achieve um, you know, they're, they're not good enough. And she and the leadership team, to their credit, and the school governors, we all were absolutely, you know, almost outraged by that and so determined to prove those people wrong. Um, and I think that as a school that can demonstrate what you can do and how you can transform performance, uh, but you've got to get the mood who's out of the way. And, and do you know what? Most of the time, um, they vote with their feet. So people say to me all the time, we we got we work in a results, what we call a results only environment. So our staff um, don't do a Monday to Friday nine to five as long as they get their work done. I don't care when they do it or how. And when I first started, I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to know what people are doing and whether they're doing the right things and how they're achieving? But if you're clear about your purpose and what you what you value and what success looks like in the organisation, the ones who don't come on board, they stick out like a sore thumb. And, and most, they don't want to be sticking out like a sore thumb and not going on the journey. And they sort of weed themselves out as well. And you might think, oh, that all sounds very good. Um, there's no one single issue is there. It's chipping away at all of those. It's clarity of purpose. It is being really clear about how you manage performance and what your expectations are and, and, and getting people, you know, what are they, what's the saying about, you know, you either on the bus or you miss the bus and getting people on the journey with you. But your, your leadership and passion will be infectious and contagious, remember, as well. Well, dear Keris, well, that's perfect timing, if I may say. We're right on quarter past 11, but not only timing-wise. I managed to ask to have three male questions and three questions from females. Whether that's gender equality with the profile of the whole audience, I'm not sure. That's for another debate. But personally, thank you very much. Uh, for for everything this morning, so it lightning, It seems to me that you've got, um, as I tried to say in the challenges that you face, a great opportunity to make an incredible difference. And I can see the transformation happening in my children's educational lives compared to to mine and the positive impact that you're all having. I think the fact that people are taking the time at your busy lives to come and think about your own development and challenging your own thinking is a really positive step and the role of the academy in supporting that is going to be integral. I think our old-fashioned expectations of leaders are that they come as a fully rounded package that will know what to implement and, and how to affect change and actually it's a journey for all of us isn't it, it's that devolution saying it's a process not an event. We're all learning, we're all adapting, we're changing to the context around us. If we Take a moment to reflect on all of the things that you've learned and done differently over the last year um, that you never would have imagined two years ago having to do and how that probably has fundamentally changed how you see um, 
pedagogy and, and the role of teachers and the interaction between children and home, some good, some bad, some difficult. But I think it's about self-care, reflection, learning, recognising that we don't have the answers all the time, surrounding ourselves by people who complement us and support us and um, also just giving us an opportunity or giving us permission that sometimes we won't be our best selves all the time and sometimes we will make mistakes but um, that drives us on hopefully to to continue to live our values continue to make a difference and continue to be really good leaders and and the other thing to say is that there's we will all have them in our staff um I have people who will say to me I couldn't be a leader I couldn't do what you do and and that's fine you know, not everybody wants to be the leader. Not everybody wants to be the person who who drives change and takes things forward. But it's a real privilege when I always think it's a real privilege when you get the opportunity to be a leader, to lead something, to um, make a difference, to leave your, leave your mark and and your stamp. And you know, you, head teachers and school leaders and uh, teachers across post sixteen education more than anyone in my uh, world of work will will know what a difference an inspirational teacher or leader makes on on someone's life and I can think of, of those for me and I'm sure you all, all remember your own and if that's not a motivator for us to continue to do better then then what is and and the other thing is that none of us is an island and there's a whole body of leadership thinking about lead, you know none of us is an island um but we're all inter, interlinked, you know, you're an incredible peer support network for each other, I'm sure. And that that is is really important, especially in, in challenging times. We would encourage you to continue to support and challenge each other and, and ask questions about, you know, how how did that transformation happen for you? What could we learn? I think the old fashioned model of leadership is much more competitive um, in terms of wanting to get on in the hierarchy and not being seem to to fail or, or or not always have the answers and I think what we need to move to is a much more supportive community and not just um in education but across sectors where we can learn from each other because I'm passionate about Wales and passionate about what we can do as a small country and I do think that we can do great things and sometimes we don't push ourselves enough sometimes we're not ambitious enough for for what we could do why can't we have the best education system in the entire world that's all within our capability um but that means that those of us who are leaders have to step up and make sure that the chances that we have are taken and that the chance that we have to make a difference is 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 one that does succeed and you know we can see what difference that makes i can see it um in the community that i live the the schools that have adapted and changed and progressed, what difference that makes to families, to communities, um, to the economy of the area I work in. And from little things like um, children being told that they couldn't achieve to seeing a role model go off to Harvard on a fully funded scholarship and his dad's still a taxi driver in Grangetown. Those things matter and they matter because you as educational leaders lift standards and, and raise people's aspirations. So. Just remind yourself of the purpose, um, what it is you're trying to achieve, but don't try and um, be 100% yourself, your best self all the time because everybody needs a break and 
need to step away and watch the football of an evening or have friends over, go for a walk, whatever it is that you need to do to look after yourself so that you can go again when that next challenge comes. So I just leave you by saying good luck. And um, we're all kind of, you're, you're there for all of us and we're all rooting for you. And every time I can spread the word about being a school governor, supporting your schools, um, you know, being a good parent that has a relationship with the school, I do, because I really believe that all of that makes your lives hopefully just a little bit easier. So good luck. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.